Welcome to Speak of the Devil. My name is Reverend Campbell, and today I'm being joined by Witch Simony Holt. How are you? I'm quite well. How are you? I'm quite well also. <laughs> we are all quite well because finally this madness is coming, seemingly coming to some form of a conclusion, and it's very, very nice. This madness, I mean the pandemic. We're Yeah, talking at least the forever. circumstances are, are improved yeah. in, in terms of mobility, um, stress, you know, but the PTSD underlying uh, a lot of people's lives yeah. um, certainly amplified when every time you leave the house you feel like you're exposing your oh no <laughs> we were talking before the show and had no serious delay issues and now as soon as we go live there's a delay issue okay so i'm going to cut to this feed and introduce uh, all of you and thank you guys for tuning in um, as soon as uh, we get a reconnection, I'll, I'll, I'll add uh, Simony back on the screen here. Zachary, thanks for joining live. First rule of critical race theory, weight reduction, bro. I don't get it, but I'm sure it's funny <laughs> if you get it. Uh, Lexi, how you doing, hon? Thanks for joining live. Gary, what's up? How you doing? Jeff Connors, how you doing? Thanks for joining. William, always good to see you, my man. Wiley, all right, you're back. Look who's back. Back again. Can you, can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. <laughs> I was like, I hope she doesn't do anything thinking she's not yet back. <laughs> yeah, just like pick my nose or something. Right. <laughs> I'll, I'll connect eventually. Um, Farith, <laughs> thanks for joining live. Good to see you. Uh, James, how you doing? Thanks for joining live. Jeff Bolin in the his house. How you doing? Dandelion Bodies. Love your goddamn name. Such a good name. Aaron Lynn, how are you, hon? Uh, David. Thanks for joining live. Heathen Hammer, what's up, Malcolm? And Lilith Malone, how are you? Okay, we are going to be talking about a topic that no one cares about, no one's ever mentioned anywhere, and probably most of you don't know what it is. But an off chance that none of that is true, we're going to be talking about critical race theory. Um, it's being sort of thrown around for months that it's been thrown in my face. Uh, and at some point I just got to the, uh, came to conclusion that I need to have a conversation about this or else people won't stop bugging me about it. And I thought who else to go to, but an academic and you just happen to be uh, my favorite academic. So thanks for joining. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I figured that since we're two white people in order to talk about critical race theory, we should try blackface, but then I second guessed myself. Ooh. No, no, no. And uh, <laughs> no. I decided it probably wasn't a good idea after all. So, um, well, here's here's okay. So uh. let me let me begin by saying yes, uh, I'm not a critical race theorist, you know, even as an academic. Um, and uh, in terms of uh, theoretical work that uses race or gender or class, um, what's really unfortunate uh, is that it's actually not taught or centralized. Uh, to me, the idea that you would start your education as undergrad with these intersections as the base is the better way to undoubtedly um, viewing multiple uh, narratives in terms of understanding any particular topic versus being taught an extremely narrow, usually white male perspective of, mm -hmm. of, of things. And so even as an advanced academic, um, I've certainly looked at gender a lot um, later on in my PhD, but it's not necessarily something that we're always looking at. And uh, 
theory on race is, is peripheral in my field. Um, and, uh, but what I've done this evening at least, um, and even in my own work is try to then uh, look at scholars who are looking at uh, race. So um, I'd like to start with um, a quote by Dr. Tressie McMillan Cotton. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's a sociologist, a professor, a uh, MacArthur Genius Fellow for the year 2020, a cultural critic, all round um, precision intellect. <laughs> yeah. And she writes, you see, the culture wars is a decades long fight for control of the discourse. It traffics in discursive violence. Words and ideas are the weapons. The stakes are never explicit, but that does not mean that they are not high. The war for controlling the discourse is a war over controlling which ideas attract money and social capital. So essentially what she's referencing here is um, right now in the digital age, um, especially even though data pre-exists the internet. Yep. Oh, let me also just bracket and say quite a bit of the um, academic stuff that uh, sounds really good uh, that I say tonight uh, is probably attributed, attributed to her work <laughs> because okay. uh, in preparation for this is what I was um, reading some of her work. Uh, yeah. So all the shitty stuff is mine and all the brilliant <laughs> stuff is hers. Um, so Noted. essentially she's talking about this idea of right now, the discourse, um, the internet, uh, the, if the internet is a cultural artifact as, as now especially social scientists begin to think about it that way. I framed my own thesis that way. Well, this is a cultural artifact. This is like old archives and documents. What's happening in the satanic conversation digitally? Yeah. And, um, and she's talking about this concept of, well, what's happening in the digital conversations is affecting politics and economics and uh, education and healthcare and medicine. And what we talk about and which ideas we sort of promote as uh, valuable then has uh, really tangible uh, economic, you know, power, uh, political power. And so one of the goals of this propaganda around critical race theory is that it is a boogeyman, yeah. um, like a moral panic, that they've sort of isolated this very tiny field in legal, um, the legal arena, the legal discipline, uh, that even scholars who are getting law degrees sometimes, you know, uh, don't take, it's a specialized area, mm -hmm. um, then they are amplifying it, distorting it, so that is almost essentially meaningless, uh, but they are creating a fabricating, they are manufacturing a fear to such an extent that, you know, we have now have new stories of parents in, for middle school children showing up at PTA meetings with posters and <laughs> demanding yeah. that critical race theory not be taught. Um, and I wish it was taught. Like they sh you sh even as um, you know, middle school children should be taught about the realities of slavery versus, oh, you know, we brought the workers here to help build the new nation, you know, versus yeah. the violence and brutality um, that of the reality of that. And even though they don't need to see you know, graphic images of how, you know, slave owners mutilated and, you know, destroyed and, you know, um, uh, the enslaved people, mm -hmm. uh, they still have enough, I think, wherewithal to understand that it wasn't some, oh, we're just migrating here for work uh, yeah. <laughs> type of narrative. And we're, we're just happy to be here, yeah. which is what then, uh, where something like critical race theory could 
um, ultimately inform education. Um, it, it should inform, uh, even though it starts as a legal field, it informs the social sciences now quite a bit if you're looking for it. But just like gender and just like class, uh, they tend to be relegated to more fringe fields versus what I think should be sort of the default. It's like if your study doesn't include you know, the perspective of these different ways of understanding your data, mm -hmm. then your study is lacking. I think just as far as American history approach in schools is, is concerned, it is very much there was a dark time of slavery, but America emancipated the slaves. You know, it's right. never that we enslaved them. It right. is always the opposite of that message. And so we always get the message from from the resolution side or the way that's going to paint us in the best possible light frame. And that makes sense. Any culture writing their history is going to want to paint themselves in the best possible way. But reality doesn't exist in the best possible way. And so, and this is something that I've always um, argued about on, on any of my shows. It's that we can't look through our histories through our own personal lenses. We have to, and, and certainly from 2021 looking backward, we have to think of it in the perspective of the time by the people who were existing in it. And that's, as far as I've understood, as we're going to get into here, exactly what critical race theory is trying to examine and bring to light. It's the idea that you may not understand the perspectives of a disenfranchised or minority person, so let's examine how, why that is, first of all, how it came to be, and how we can unravel that so that perspectives are global rather than from one single frame of mind. And that's a very satanic thing to do. It, I mean, that's lesser magic is what that is. Understanding yeah. the other person's experience so that you can then meet them on their own terms and then do whatever you will with that. Um, Let's talk yeah, about well, you're definition. also getting a very narrow, I mean, in, in terms of just, just broadly, yeah. the idea that you'd only look at one perspective um, also then narrows your, the data that you are working with. Yeah. And so then your interpretation of things is, and it's not just about understanding a different perspective, it's also about using, as you say, a reality. And, and one of the critiques that I saw online in terms of this moral panic was, oh, you're making white children feel bad about being white. Well, um, let me borrow a phrase that comes from uh, the right, fuck your feelings. <laughs> the idea that somehow you shouldn't teach the reality of something uh, because you will hurt someone's feelings uh, is something that can be thrown back. And, and no one is saying, hey, white kids, you should feel bad. The idea is, uh, and, and if, if, if that is what's being understood, that's part of the moral panic of what they're trying to promote. Right. And uh, instead of saying, hey, here's, as you say, this is a reality that we've done with. There are still consequences. Not only are there still consequences, um, increasingly we realize, we, I think white people are beginning to have this conversation with themselves, but that not only did um, just because slavery officially ended that, and even J Jim Crow technically ended, but ever since that, they've been gutting away at rights and laws and, pol and policies in every single institution in, um, and I won't just say America because it happens in Canada too. Like we have our own uh, genocide of indigenous persons and the same, well, not the same. We got that too. Persons. Yeah. So in, in every imperial nation, the idea that, that the, that the, an empire would um, 
want to paint themselves in, the, in, the, in a good light isn't just about the concept of, of historical narrative. It's because it is capital. Because then you can sell an idea to your own people. You can sell the idea of America, American freedom, freedom um, as, as well as you, like you know, being uh, in part of the military as the, 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 <laughs> as the United States military powers uh, invades the world, um, exploits resources, uh, topples governments that are self-governing, that are more independent, that are sovereign, and uh, then establishes ones that are willing to benefit a uh, elite class while everyone else uh, suffers and the resources are then um, drawn towards the US and Canada and Europe. So the, it's a, as a global narrative um, that if the white people succeed, there's a narrative then therefore that built into that, that, oh, therefore that means white people are better and that the logic is self-generating without looking at all the evidence everywhere in every institution that this better is because everyone else has deliberately been sabotaged in virtually every institution that has ever been built up and that even to succeed in those, um, it takes a lot. It takes more. Right. I want to start um sort of backtrack for definitions so i i found sure. a britannica.com <laughs> definition of critical race theory and then you know you've sent over um documents and uh word doc and uh, pdf and stuff and i think this still holds you know it holds water for what they uh, are intending and of course it's not supposed to be squished like that so it's saying that critical race theory is the intellectual movement and loosely organized framework of legal analysis based on the premise that race is not a natural biologically grounded feature of physically distinct subgroups of human beings, but a socially constructed category that's used to oppress and exploit people of color. And I think if you look at any time in just American history and then extrapolate that out to literally all across the world, you cannot argue that the majority in one space is going to disenfranchise and abuse the minority in that space. That's been the case all over the world for all of human existence. So you can't deny that that's not a reality. It's just you, you're lying to yourself. And so if critical race theory is simply the understanding of that and then trying to figure out how to undo that, then the only people that would lose out are the people in power. People like me, for example. Um, recognizing yep. that doesn't mean you want to be a victim or you want to you know, tear down all white people or you're gonna be teaching it in your Sunday school and, and brainwashing your kids and, and turning communist country. Those are arguments for idiots who don't think. And if you're a Satanist and you think that that's the slippery slope that happens from examining others' realities, then you need to do some homework. You, you need to work on your, your mind a little bit more. Read a little bit. It's frustrating. And I, I, I also wouldn't necessarily... Here's the, here's the issue where I think that when, when you talk about the concept of power is that there is other um, very closely related scholarship about intersectionality. And even though it's been just like critical race theory, distorted to mean 
some bullshit, but they're both um, intimately related. And, for, and, and actually, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw is the scholar um, who has uh, proposed both these theories, who has worked on this in the collection of other uh, other scholars as well. And in the intersectional understanding of that, you would benefit because in terms of uh, part of this concept of promoting whiteness itself as the epitome of um, strength and valor and honor and all, and all these other things that sound good on the surface is uh, also a lack of mental health uh, services for men, uh, the lack of um, you know, uh, healthcare for veterans. Because the concept that, oh, if, if you need that kind of help, then you're weak. So it contributes to, it contributes to the devaluation of white men as well. It does disenfranchise, <laughs> maybe not economically, but there's plenty of areas that um, a whole bunch of scholars can point to and say, well, you suffer as well. Uh, but you know your the benefits far outweigh them. So I think then you become the stakeholders. But so do I. Yeah. You know, I, uh, the white woman. In fact, um, there's tons of scholarship that I've been reading on uh, a lot uh, lately about the complicity of white women uh, in terms of their proximity to white men, and because there is this um, concept that women, especially white women, will bring up misogyny and sexism for their benefit. Uh, but never bring it up when it involves uh, black women or people of color or non-binary or different types of, um, uh, you know, gender identified persons. Uh, but only, it's, it's only sexist if it benefits, you know, I only want to dismantle it if it benefits me. Or they feel it's diverse if they hire white women. Like, well, look, we're diverse. We have, we have women here. <laughs> and that that woman um, then is just as complicit because she doesn't, um, acknowledge, uh, or, you know, her place, our place, you know, I'm, I'm in a university of mostly, uh, white people, uh, which in a city that is incredibly multicultural and my high school was multicultural and my friends were multicultural until I got to university. And then it was just white people. Crackers <laughs> for days. <laughs> just saltine after saltine <laughs> walking the halls of academia that's little right. crumbs behind them. Yeah. Um, I, I always have to sort of fall back on the individual side of this because as human beings, are we not hardwired to think tribally for our survival and then moving into <laughs> systems? Is it not, is it not a natural result that again, because all of history we've been doing this, is it not a natural result to just amp up you and your kind and sort of have that, whether it's overt or not, have that dividing line. Is that not a natural state in men? Natural. I mean, this word, who the fuck knows what natural is? Yeah. I, I, I don't. Granola is what it yeah, is. The, the argument that this is natural, that any kind of human behavior, um, predictable, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, uh, expected in many ways that sure, people would grapple with power. Sure. Fuck your feelings. Again, mm -hmm. this concept that that's sort of used, a natural way of things, is an illusion. And it's not a logical argument. It's an irrational argument. So one of my biggest frustrations as someone who is trained now in academia mm -hmm. is uh, hearing bullshit that emerges from all kinds of places that sounds rational, that uses all kinds of language that you might find in rhetoric, but are actually derailing tactics, uh, uh, logical fallacies. And 
natural isn't a category, isn't an argument. Mm -hmm. It is a social construct. Who the fuck do we know what's natural? Humans made this. It exists in nature. You know, this is from sand. Yeah. It's it's manufactured, but it's still natural. Right. You know, we don't have a. It's that's not a category that anybody necessarily um, understands. So when it's when it's when it's put like that, as if it's an argument to accept the current status quo. And my counter argument would also say, yeah, it's also natural to want to kick your oppressor in the fucking balls. Like, right. let's be realistic about who benefits. If it's only yeah. a small subset of people who benefit, and uh, it's not really you and it's not really me, but we benefit enough that we are sort of invested in maintaining um, the power structure of the oligarchs, <laughs> the increasing 1%. Uh, and if they promote this idea that it's, it's to our benefit, we, they give us just, they give white people just enough um, to in order to think that the world is fine. Mm -hmm. uh, but all these other people who are existing in a world that is designed to kill them, you know, and I mean that in quite a, a literal sense. Like, if, if policing is designed to, you know, um, kill black people, if the, the entire structure to maintain uh, white neighborhoods and white property and white value and white economic uh, structure, then, then the state is invested in not just oppression, but death. And if uh, healthcare uh, disproportionately affects um, Black women, especially, they um, even med students are taught sometimes that um, black black people's skin is thicker, mm -hmm. and that even though the studies will then show this is a complete myth, but you you can still find it in some textbooks, and the idea uh, that they don't feel pain as much, uh, and therefore the treatment um, causes more uh, issues, uh, more death. There's all kinds of ways of this type of bias. Uh, that gets uh, embedded in all of our institutions that disproportionately affects certain groups. So, mm -hmm. so when I when I look at natural, I don't really care what the fuck is natural. I want a better system. Uh, I want a, an equitable system. Mm -hmm. And here's here's my satanic interpretation. Um, if the only way you can win at something is because you have shot everyone else in the knees, <laughs> you're a pussy. And I don't mean that. It's a derogatory term towards, you know, people with um, <laughs> vulvas, <laughs> their genitals. I mean it in the, in the concept of that if, if your talent and drive and creativity is exacting and brilliant and you have put in the work, then, you know, I want to compete against people who, you know, are on an equal footing. I want to compete right. against the best in academia, not and not because just who got filtered out by all the processes of which academia filters out everyone but the most privileged. Um, because then everyone who's but the most privileged doesn't produce the same type of scholarship as people who are looking automatically at things from a different lens. So quite literally, your student who has a different life experience is bringing something new to scholarship, contributing more ideas. Uh, and because they have a different experience than the broader accepted narrative, they also grow up with the idea of, of multiple narratives and how those things either conflict, how they're coded, how they're treated, how the, what access they have. So they, 
na naturally, <laughs> by their experience, uh, tend to understand certain concepts faster uh, than, than privileged kids. And it's not that the privileged kids aren't smart, it's just that they, if their, their challenge is to understand perspectives that aren't like theirs. Mm -hmm. And whereas someone else is, is, has a perspective that is not reflected anywhere in academia, and their challenge is to push back against it, this entire powerful institution um, that uh, completely ignores uh, you know, realities and, and studies and, and relegates different things to very niche corners of academia. I'll, I'll give you one example, there's many. Um, uh, but in terms of class, so just because I grew up poor as shit, um, one of the consistent uh, experiences in academia for me was um, professors, you know, talking about um, academia in very poetic terms. Very, like, this is a vocation, uh, this is a calling. And I say, that's great, where's the fucking money? You know, where's the check? <laughs> and, the, and that the idea that you would want to discuss salary, fair salary, livable wage, in terms of an old school in academia is considered crass. I'm like, it's only considered crass because you come from money. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a trained, highly trained professional at this point. You know, I'm an expert. The idea that somehow I should still have to beg for the concept of being um, you know, awarded a livable wage um, for that kind of, for, for my exceptional high training um, right. is, and, and that, the, that the discussion about it is relegated to an embarrassing way versus openly discussing, hey, we didn't do this. Um, because we were bored, we did this because we wanted a career that we thought paid well. Mm. Turns out we got a bit scammed, but that's a separate. <laughs> I, um, just to sort of <laughs> hone back in here on critical race theory itself, because I think what you're doing is describing why it's important to have critical race theory as a, a study, because this is not just in this video that you guys are watching as the audience. I mean, you can literally look at any data point in any field and it will show that if you're not your standard cis white male, you are immediately at a disadvantage. And in some cases you won't get the job, you'll get a lower salary, you'll pay more for a car loan, you won't be able to buy the house. I mean, there's a lot, you know, you mentioned the, the healthcare issue. So I wanna talk about what the basic tenets, and this is just according to the critical race theory and introduction by Richard Delgado and Jean Stephansis, Stephansis? I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that. But um, first, racism is ordinary, not aberrational normal science, the usual way society does business, the common everyday experience of most people of color in this country. I think that's important to, to note because it feeds into my comment earlier about it being normal, it, it being tribal, it being natural is the word I used. It, it's, it's natural, it's normal because it is pervasive in all of white society and not just white society, by the way, you can be in a minority and still other of in your own minority, darker or lighter skin, you have different yeah. feelings about them. So, you know, different types of hair, how curly it may be or how straight it may be. There's different biases that come into this. So we, we can't pretend that it's just white men with racial issues, but they're the people in the majority of positions of power in first world nations. And so I think if you're trying to even the playing field, that's a great first place to start of examining why that is. 
Um, so that was the first point. The second was most would agree that our system of white over color ascendancy serves important purposes, both psychic and material for the dominant group. And there's, there's two features under that. And the first is ordinariness. It means that racism is difficult to address or cure because it's just not acknowledged most of the time. Colorblind or formal conceptions of equality expressed in rules that insist only on treatment that is the same across the board can thus remedy only the most bland forms of discrimination. And the second feature of that is that sometimes called interest convergence or material determinism. It adds a further dimension because racism advances the in interests of both white elites materially and working class whites physically. Large segments of society have little incentive to eradicate it. And the third, and there's only four of these, so the third is um, the theme of critical race theory, the social construction thesis. It holds that race and races are products of social thought and relations, not objective, inherent, or fixed. They correspond to no biological or genetic reality. Rather, races are categories that society invents, manipulates, or retires when convenient. And all you have to do is look at um, whether a race is a religious movement or whether it's a geographic boundary or whether it's a physical appearance. It completely de depends on the area in which you're raised, the culture in which you're raised, and whether or not you care about those distinctions or not. And then finally, the element occurs um, concerns the notion of a unique voice of color. Coexisting in somewhat uneasy tension with anti-essentialism, the voice of color thesis holds that because of their different histories and experiences with oppression, black, American Indian, Asian, and Latino writers and thinkers may be able to communicate to their white counterpart matter, counterparts matters that whites are unlikely to know. And that just makes perfect sense. And we talked about it briefly at the very top of the show. If, if you are a Satanist, for example, you're able to speak to Satanism better than a Catholic in general, right? So if you're a, um, a, a, a Latin woman, you're going to be able to speak to the Latin experience better than a white man would. That's logic. That's just, of course. So that's just the fourth component of critical race theory. So I didn't see any of those elements shout out that white people are going to be taught to hate themselves or topple the system or I don't know what, like where, again, well, we... I think it makes people uncomfortable. And even when I've had to examine my own racism and the idea, actually, oh, okay. if there's a whole bunch of scholarship talking about white women, I thought, okay, let me read this scholarship. Uh, I'm not a racist. And then I read it and I was like, oh shit. <laughs> and there's a whole bunch of, uh, not just, I mean, the term that we throw around now time is, is microaggression, um, which I think is, you know, accurate in terms of day-to-day um, -day interactions. But I think there's also more um, subtle things like not standing up. You know, I remember a black coworker um, telling me that um, one of our other white male coworkers um, made comments about her hair. And he always made it in like this joking way. And my response was like, of course he does. And it never even occurred to me that, that maybe me then has some power, even though they both uh, were above me, uh, to go to say, hey, um, it's not cool. Like to <laughs> every single day, you make some comment about this woman's hair, uh, the, her, her, the hair that grows out of her head in a way uh, because you have singled her out. You have decided somehow um, that this is uh, not even you, that this is not some, um, 
her daily experience at work is then antagonistic uh, because someone feels entitled to make a joke uh, about her appearance. And you brought up the concept of different um, categories of groups uh, and their own uh, racial tensions. And I think that's a, a really important um, point because I also think there's a lot of peer work that has to be done. Mm -hmm. So that to me, to critique um, you know, someone else's culture that way, uh, it's not my job. Like it, it's not the white person's job to point that out, but I do think that a peer-to-peer -peer work. And one of the interesting segments I saw was a uh, Hassan Minhaj, and he talked about anti-blackness, you know, among his community. And he's like, "Oh, we love ballers. You know, we love black people when they're it's hip hop and they have big cars and they have nice, uh, you know, nice shoes, and we listen to the music and we are all about black culture. But you know, if your son or daughter brings home a black person to date, you know, it's." <laughs> the record scratches. <laughs> and so he, and that even with, even in terms of uh, shadism or featureism, um, that Eurocentric, um, you know, uh, Eurocentric features are more favored than others. And uh, that these are multiple nuances and, and, and discourses happening among different types of, of, of cultures. And it's, I think there's a lot more of it happening. I think that white people have to stay out of that discourse because here's what happens is like then show. the entitled white person says, well, look, it exists everywhere, yeah. and therefore don't never examines their own complicity in it, and or then uses it as an excuse, oh, well, we're not, I'm not that bad, that kind of uh, concept. It's not white people's job to jump into those. I'm aware of them. I try to keep on top of what's happening, but it's never on me to necessarily call that out. But calling out white people, well, shit. I'll do that. <laughs> if, that's the, if that's the only power I have right now is like right. to say, this is some bullshit right here. Um, where my coworker, I didn't do it. It didn't occur to me that I had the power because, you know, I had only had the job a few months. They had been there for years, you know. Uh, but now on just the rethink, a small incident like that, maybe it's on me to go to say, you know, what you're doing is super fucking racist. Knock it off, you know. Mm. I can talk to a white guy like that. Shit. <laughs> And this is something that any healthy adult should be able to take criticism and rather than just shaking it off and, and yelling at the person giving it, maybe just say, all right, you know, even if they don't agree, all right, well, thanks for the heads up. And then just think about it for a second. Most people can't well, the, do that. The, also, but. I think there's another, there's another aspect to this concept of professionalism and hair and black women mm -hmm. um, is that. Uh, most of the, our concept of professionalism itself is very anti-Black. And the reason is um, because we favor European uh, beauty standards. So uh, if, they, if, the, if Black hair comes in tons of uh, and styles, and there's a whole bunch of different ways that they style their hair, and 90% of them are deemed uh, unprofessional when it's just, it's, it's a way to style hair that comes out of their head and that we force people, in the, black people in the workforce to um, change their hair so that it looks more acceptable, more white, uh, and we call that professional. And what a lot of black women now are saying is, this is a racist attitude, professionalism. You know, the way I style my, my natural hair is not <laughs> unprofessional. Mm -hmm. My work, my job, you know, uh, uh, is, is what I do and that these, that we never even really consider them because the handbook on professional attire um, is rigid and 
it wouldn't necessarily affect me because the idea that uh, I could go in with like messy hair in a bun and no one would really call me unprofessional for doing it. Uh, but there's an extra burden. So a lot of people of color um, talk about the extra burden of presentation, the extra burden of excellence, the extra burden of, of never letting them see a crack or giving them a reason. And academics talk about it a lot, mm. um, that, uh, that the amount of work that they are expected to do just so that no one can deny them tenure, no one can deny them opportunities in a way that others are not. And it's very real, it's, it's studied everywhere. It's quite, um, it's quite obvious, you know, that this is a, uh, a recognized issue. Uh, so it, it, and it, it permeates a lot of different institutions. So the, the concept of critical race theory, um, despite being, you know, as we've mentioned, begins in this little uh, legal field, uh, is more in terms of the social sciences of how we would then look at all these aspects of, of, of social interaction. So uh, Dr. Cotton uh, talks about this concept of, well, uh, every single um, you know, uh, social interaction is therefore communicating multiple different um, codes and data and information. And that these are in the micro level then collected into mass quantitative data is how we examine, you know, what's happening in terms of our society, how people move the narrative forward, how they try to suppress certain other narratives. And that the, when she says the stakes are high, it's because quite literally um, you have to think about uh, privilege, who has access to writing the laws, um, who has access to closing doors, um, who's hoarding resources, and, and those are very broad, you know, difficult questions, especially if you're just an individual trying to survive, mm -hmm. and which is also not an accident. You know, if you're, if the current gig economy and everybody's stressed and, you know, your dollar is not worth what it used to be and you're constantly grinding, it does make people on the one hand, just forced to work more just to make ends meet. And uh, uh, so that they're less, they have less energy to, <laughs> to fight a system, to change a system that's uh, disadvantaging them, you know, because yeah. you, you, so it's a, it's, it's a, it's a broad thing. To me, the idea, critical race theory, just in terms of race and gender and class, in terms of, as a, as a, as a social scientist, to me, these ideas are, um, should be included more to also in a broader conversation uh, in terms of what we see in our moment, we see in our pop culture narratives. And, mm -hmm. and I'll give you just one example from pop culture. Is a, uh, whoops, hi kitty. <laughs> this is Tilu. Um, coming to join the party. Is that in a lot of pop culture narratives, um, I know every iteration of the white male as a hero, as a villain, as a depressed, anti-hero, <laughs> um, you know, whether he's violent or soft or um, sensitive or married or single or a playboy. I have, I have seen pop culture stories about white men multiple times over and that I found myself wanting to see different content of, of you know, just different pop culture, different experiences. And one of the strongholds of, of American media, Canadian media as well, is that they, when they do fund projects of different um, perspectives, Jesus Christ, Kitty. Um, <laughs> this feather dust in your face. 
Yeah, is that they is that they then narrow it or they whitewash it and they don't want necessarily to, you know, present anything other that doesn't reinforce the concept of the white male hero. Mm-hmm. And so the so that quite literally when when different people create their own media and they create their own uh, pop culture, I'm more interested in it because it's new narratives that I've never heard of, new experiences. I was like, oh, wow, that's an interesting dynamic. There's a whole bunch of other things happening in this particular show that I had never considered. And so to me, that's interesting. Yeah. And, and the idea that somehow those stories and those narratives are lesser in the marketplace of ideas is, um, is bullshit because they're being actively defunded, uh, fired, <laughs> doors shut, and there's so many instances of that that kind of thing happening. So, mm. um, a, a critical race theory approach, or at least a critical approach that includes race and gender and class, talks about these issues of whose stories get told, whose stories are important, and 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 whose stories do we value and uh, create capital. And if they say, if they keep saying, oh, black movies never make money, uh, but when they make Black Panther, um, you know, clearly debunks that. And so what they're really saying is, we don't want to make films uh, that don't reflect a majority white audience. Um, right. But I, I always think, well, let's, let's, let's see what a white audience would do. And clearly, you know, when you're making interesting and compelling art, uh, I think a, a white audience will respond to it if they're given the chance. Yeah, and you do have you do have uh, massive corporations like Disney who are taking a chance on that by bringing out, and they're doing it in you know the I don't I don't know if this is demeaning in any way or if it's just encouraging just to see anything, but. They go to a genre of superhero, which, yes, is popular right now, but it's seen as sort of like it's not high art, (laughs) you know, (laughs) when we're going to present the black experience. We're going to do it through comic book movies rather than uh, a a, a commanding drama. And, yes, there are dramas out there that focus on a black experience. Uh, Usually they're period pieces. uh, just as one example, Netflix has the, the latest season of Master of None, which I thought was fantastic. It was very <laughs> hyper-focused um, to <laughs> nothing to do with white people, which I thought was yeah. uh, very... And it's successful as well. So we are seeing little things come peeking through. Uh, and so that's encouraging. Of course, there's also much more vocal audience demanding um, that there is fair representation nowadays, which, again... I don't see how that could be a bad thing. If I only wanted to watch white people doing white things, that's there. So you're not losing anything. <laughs> like you're not. No, you're right. It's, it always will be. Yeah. There's no. There's no shortage. And uh, I think Master of None is a, is an excellent example because it's 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 uh, it's excellent writing. It's a queer relationship. Um, it's nuanced. It's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I found the latest season uh, quite. Uh, compelling as well. Uh, one of the interesting things about um, that show, and with new t- uh, different types of, um, I don't know quite what you call Netflix and HBO private, I'm not quite sure what the word would be for the, that type of television, as opposed to like streaming NBC services. or yeah, streaming services um, that aren't subject to uh, different regulative, regula- uh, regulation authorities of like, um, you know, having like to NBA be. or something? 
Yeah, that those kinds of things where, um, you know, NBC and ABC and all those channels uh, used to be, which mm -hmm. uh, very much altered the content of what you saw, yeah. um, is that many of them are also um, actively then hiring writers that reflect the stories of what's happening versus, oh, here's some narratives um, of non-white people written by white people. So it's really how those people exist in the white imagination. And uh, that's when a lot of people um, complain. It's like, well, you, yeah, I see the actor you cast, um, but you know, the, the, the storyline, the character is not an accurate, an accurate version of, of, of that person. Mm -hmm. And so that, uh, that the, the effort should be that who's ever in the writer's room should reflect what's happening. And that talent is everywhere. Um, I think there's sometimes these arguments I hear, even in academia, when they do job searches and they say, oh, well, we didn't, you know, got and we didn't receive very many applications of um, non-white males. And uh, sometimes I think that's a bit BS. And sometimes it's also the way that they circulate something that limits who would see the job application. Uh, sometimes it's uh, the person that they hire um, you, uh, if, if you start at a class um, that's diverse, uh, but at the end of the PhD, the one person that landed the tenure track job is a white male, and that happens so much, then there's something in that process that isn't working because they all receive the same education and technically the same opportunities, right. uh, but, the, but, the, but the process filters them out uh, in very tragic ways sometimes. And I've seen it, uh, I've seen it over and over and over again. Um, so it's, it's not, an obvious thing because every department and every university says, no, we're invested in, we're invested in hiring, um, you know, diverse talent. And it's like, well, clearly you're not because you don't actively seeking out, you know, different applicants. If you say, I want to hire a black woman lawyer, uh, there are tons. And so you can, you, you can target your search and encourage people to apply and hire among you know, the th literally thousands of overqualified applicants, if you're searching for it, you just have to be more, um, take more of an active role in that kind of thing. Right. Well, I want to bring up the, the, the fear side of this again, um, because I thought these just little examples here were interesting. This is from um, edweek.org. What is critical race theory and why is it under attack is the, the title of the article. And it brought up these ideas of, uh, much of the current debate appears to spring not from the academic texts, but from fear among critics that students, especially white students, will be exposed to supposedly damaging and self-demoralizing ideas, like the advocacy group Parents Defending Education claimed some students were teaching, uh, were teaching that white people are inherently privileged, while black and other people of color are inherently oppressed and victimized that achieving racial justice and equality between racial groups requires discriminating against people based on their whiteness, and that the United States was founded on racism. And <laughs> I think all of those are true. I, like, whether it's taught that way or not, I don't understand how you can argue with, with any of those points. That, well, let me, let, me, let me break this down really quick. White people are inherently privileged, yes, while black people and other people of color are inherently oppressed and victimized, maybe not they're maybe not they're being actively beaten in the streets or thrown down and changed, though that has happened um, on the regular basis. But yeah, yeah, no, that that our data proves that out. Um, 
achieving racial justice and equality between racial groups requires discriminating against people based on their whiteness. I don't think that's true. I, again, elevating others or not even elevating. Let me, let me rephrase that. Providing actual level playing ground only sinks you if it's to the point that you brought up earlier, Sim. Um, I don't know. I've never asked if I could call you Sim before. Yes, okay? yes, man. Okay. Yes. Um, the only way that that can actually happen is if you didn't actually meet the requirement to be at the base level in the first place. You just weren't good enough in the first place. And the only reason why you were up at that level was because other people were being tamped down. If you want full meritocracy, if you really want your ability to be able to be tested in an equal playing field, then you shouldn't worry about others having the exact same starting point as you. That should not be an issue unless, of course, you didn't get there correctly on your own merits. Um, and then the final point of um, uh, the United States was founded on racism. We had slaves that were not included as people in the Constitution, the founding document of the United States. Can you honestly look at that and say that that's not racist? <laughs> well, the, the concept of race itself is, is created by chattel slavery. Like, so um, we tend to think, when we say it's a social construct, we mean that quite literally. Um, it's not as if um, different, you know, uh, cultures at different times didn't notice skin color, but the categorizations uh, didn't exist based on skin color. There's all different types of categorizations in uh, societies, um, but the way that uh, it is now um, that we understand race is very much just a narrative. And one of the ways that um, uh, to justify chattel slavery is to um, both uh, promote uh, white Protestant uh, civilization as the pinnacle of advancement, mm -hmm. and then therefore also uh, talk about um, uh, African people as uh, primitive, as um, less advanced, as uh, all kinds of different um, derogatory, as evil, as inherently somehow um, lesser. And there's a, there's a type of racism called biological determinism, um, which is just as much of a pseudoscience as uh, a whole bunch of other bullshit. Um, that somehow looks at the tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of between humans, like what we have uh, in the same is, is is overwhelmingly the same and versus what makes up the melanin of the content of our skin right. and, uh, you know, different features is like a very, you know, a minute um, type of, uh, of difference. And that somehow within this minute um, collection of um DNA, um, a whole bunch of things are different. And that is, um, it's been debunked, it's a, it's a bogus theory. But what one of the things that biological determinism say, will say, oh, well, we're not, we're not racist. Look, we think that um, Jews and Asians are actually outperform uh, white people, therefore we're not racist. But that's just a way to then justify the anti-blackness. Um, chattel slavery begins the imperial project of racecraft. It's a, it's a construct, it is a generated narrative um, to justify um, uh, treating you know, enslaved persons and profiting off of that uh, type of brutality. And the idea that somehow it was all in the past and it was acceptable at the time is also bunk because throughout all of um, the history of chattel slavery, you had uh, people who objected 
all kinds of white people even, you know, and, and, and there's, we have the documents say, well, this is immoral. Like we cannot do this and trying to um, abolish it in various ways. They didn't get much traction, mm -hmm. but if those people existed, then therefore the modern argument that says, oh, it was just acceptable at the time is also bunk. Like, no, it wasn't, because there's a whole bunch of people that thought it was wrong. And uh, for damn sure, the people that were stolen, kidnapped, uh, worked to their death. You know, their, the lifespan once they arrived was like 10 years, because they worked nonstop on, you know, the bare minimum of uh, substance and then just died of overwork and exhaustion. So uh, for the most part, mm -hmm. and, and in terms of all kinds of brutality and subject to all kinds of brutality, uh, as well. So the concept that somehow um, they were deserving or lesser or a sub a subhuman is a complete bunk. And yeah. when those ideas is, is promoted, um, it is a pseudoscience. So I'm not interested in those ideas. I'm not interested in debating the humanity right. of of black persons or black <laughs> or at all. Like to me, the idea that someone would bring that to me is bunk. I'm not. I'm not debating whether or not they're full humans. Fuck off. Go to your circle <laughs> jerk of the Reddit corner of the internet. I get it. There's plenty of bullshit out there that you'll will find your ideas resonating. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to me, I'm on, I'm interested more in how to then shift those narratives in a way that benefits everyone, in the way that allows for better quality of life, in the way for that allows me access to different narratives. So here's one thing that I've also been trying to do is I realized, um, just as an academic, that I know a lot about Euro European history, uh, North American history, less about South America. Um, Asia depends. I know about narratives in terms of missionaries. You know, so there's a selective um, areas of my knowledge. And then when I thought about just the whole continent of Africa, I realized I knew virtually nothing. And then when I started to research, I realized that here's all this stuff, this knowledge that that has been studied, but not nearly as funded, well-funded as uh, other cultures, right. um, because we have a concept that they that they lived in mud huts, that there wasn't much culture. And then when I began to, and I didn't realize that I had that image in my brain, um, quite literally put there by commercials of starving Ethiopian children right. that circulated when I was a youth. That was the image I had of Africa in my head that I didn't realize was there until I actively started researching um, as an academic. Now that I know how to do that, I can, I cluster follow um, a whole bunch of scholars working on something that interests me. And then I get a whole bunch of, you know, images and data and art um, uh, about, you know, so recently on TikTok, there's a, an art historian who was talking about uh, Cuba, Cubism from uh, Picasso, uh, but that he was inspired by these sculptures of African art um, that had these uh, shapes, but that that is never promoted in terms of his genius. Right. That and then when she when she showed all these images of African art that looked like his paintings, <laughs> <laughs> he's all derivative. <laughs> yeah. So and even though a lot of art is derivative, and the, the derivativeness or the derivation isn't the issue, yeah. it's the silencing of the inspiration. You know, any artist now that looks at African art and says, I want to collaborate in a way that benefits both, that pays respect to the art that you are doing, that we, is, is to me the way that these types of narratives should be done versus mm -hmm. what usually happens is uh, someone sees something, um, a, a white person sees it, copies that art and they benefit of it. And you see that in a lot of different um, 
pop culture art now today, not just in terms of African art, but in African-American art. If American pop culture is driven by African-American art, it is, it is virtually everywhere in every aspect, but that the proper um, attribution to it and therefore who benefits from it, who gets financially paid, who gets paid yeah. is usually the white people that copy that art. Um, I don't know if you know about TikTok Look right now. There's a really interesting thing happening. Rock and roll, yeah. I mean, that's yeah, exact same. Exactly what happened. And on TikTok right now, there's this interesting thing happening. So um, every time there's a new dance craze, uh, it's usually because a, a black TikToker on a new song makes a dance and then a whole bunch of people copy it. And um, what was happening a lot is that then a white uh, person would copy the dance, but they have more followers and then they go viral and end up making money and become a paid content creator. But the person, but never attributes the original, you know, uh, dancer. So black TikTok content creators right now are on a blackout. Any new pop song, they're not creating them. And you know what's happening? The white creators are not creating their own dances. <laughs> they're <laughs> just sort that. of like, yeah, and it's 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 a fascinating case study. Just sort of stuck people. They just said, you know what? I never get attributed. Uh, all these white girls go viral, um, and uh, and every single time because they've they've copied uh, some uh, black dancer, and and never you know gave credit or tagged them or whatever or you know passed the mic as it says. So the the doing the viral dance isn't the issue. It's who goes rival, who benefits from it, and and why. Right. And so I think it's kind of an interesting immediate case study of that kind of thing where the progenitors, the creators of something that we all benefit from and we all enjoy, you know, never get their due credit. They don't get paid for it. They don't um, then are encouraged to continue to create this content. And they're doing it um, organically in the sense that, that, that if, if Black culture, Black American culture especially, is engaged in a lot of the things that everyone else consumes. You know, white people consume hip hop more than black people. <laughs> That's their main audience. And yet, um, somehow, there's the uh, if you if you enjoy black culture, but then denigrate and um, are racist towards black people, then it's just another you know incidence of where something like critical race theory can allow a reflexive response of how do you consume black art. Um, what is your position there in terms of co this consumption? Um, who's really getting the money? And I think about that a lot in terms of my uh, 20 years ago, I was very much involved in the uh, Montreal hip hop scene. And um, at the time that discourse didn't really exist, but now I think retroactively. Hmm, so I was a guest in this black space. Even though everyone there was kind of multicultural, um, I never really thought about my presence there of, mm. of consuming black culture and what it meant um, especially as a new thing that then blew up to be international in this um, crazy way that's uh, uh, kind of interesting to think about um, our role. I don't have the answers. I'm just saying that the, the critical aspect to, to me now is that, well, what types of questions can I ask myself that then, that then benefits people who are creating art that I enjoy? I have consumed hip-hop my whole life. So what does that mean in terms of... Uh, how I'm consuming it and the narratives that I'm promoting about um, this culture that I am enjoying very much. Yeah. Well, I, I want to file this next statement because I think we've done a fair job in describing what critical race theory is from those actually doing the study of critical race theory, not from people on the outside trying to shut it down. We've done a pretty fair job, I think, of 
explaining and giving examples of why they're doing that, why they're looking into um, critical race theory. Um, and we should file this sort of last bit because we're sort of closing in, well, we've passed our hour just now, um, on what's old is new again. Because the idea of banning critical race theory is not new. And in fact, what was brought to my attention that I was not aware of is that in the early and mid 20th century, the concern was about socialism or Marxism. The conservative American Legion, beginning in the 1930s, sought to rid schools of progressive-minded textbooks that encouraged students to consider economic inequalities. Two decades later, the John Birch Society raised similar criticisms about school materials, as with CRT criticisms. The fear was that students would be somehow harmed by exposure to these ideas. So this has been being banned from the 1930s to the 1950s to today, being actively sought to be suppressed. And just last week, I had, um, I think it was last week, I had an, a, a, an episode of The Devil's Advocate where third side, um, how, how, how can you frame a third side perspective? And that's not to look at the issue itself, but look around the issue. Find out who is going to benefit from silencing uh, the uh, sharing or the study of critical race theory um, in the public at large. Why would they want to stifle it and silence it? What are the real concerns? And does it affect you? Meaning, if it's silenced, is it going to affect you? If it's not silenced and it's just being shared, is it going to affect you? And I think... We can all, in our own ways, come up with our own answers to those questions, but you have to ask, why is it trying to be suppressed? Why, and extrapolate it out to, to everything else, why are we not encouraging voting and instead trying to stop certain groups from voting? Why are we trying to stifle certain voices in first world countries worldwide usually over the typical white voice that's in the majority. Why is that? And you've mentioned it many, many times, and I think you can always come down to who's making the money. Who is yeah. making money off of stifling those voices? Who is in positions of power because those voices are stifled? And that's literally the only thing you need to know in whether or not it should be quieted. Now, if you truly believe in free speech, and you hear this from the right all the time, we are proponents of free speech, then why are you trying to stifle free speech? And the exploration of free speech being stifled. Yeah. You, you're well, either uh, a proponent of it or you're not. Well, it's, it's also a, you know, I have complicated views on free speech, and even though I'm pro-free pro speech, but Canada has some interesting anti-hate legislation. So I can say, I hate Albanians. My apologies to the Albanian community for using. <laughs> You're going to get canceled now. Um, so I can say I hate Martians, and I can I can deride them as much as I want. But in Canada, uh, if I if I then begin speech that mobilizes active harm against them, it's like yeah. I hate Albanians, I hate Martians, <laughs> and uh, I want us all um, to head to those communities and harass them. Uh, I don't want them to be, you know, served at restaurants. I want them to be um, segregated. Um, these ideas, if I begin to uh, a campaign mm -hmm. um, to actively harm them in their social access to resources, um, then there can be an argument made where I could be charged with um, hate speech or... Yeah, it's the same here. 
Yeah, and so I, I have, and so I, I like these laws, and I think, uh, I think they have to be, just like anything else, um, an ongoing, um, very, you know, examined type of thing. We don't, we, I don't think anyone's ever been sent to jail in Canada for it, and because not a lot of people are using the law, but I like the idea, like, well, of course, like, if you're encouraging, and you see that a lot in terms of, of gender-based violence, you know, if you're, if you're encouraging trans persons um, violence violence against them then and quite literally the rhetoric around trans persons directly translates to them actually being harmed then it's not the suppression of the discourse you have the the freedom to say those things but now in the digital age when we talk about deplatforming and we talk about how it can work that's not suppressing free speech that's just not allowing a platform. And these two things are very different. I'm allowed to say whatever the fuck I want, but that doesn't entitle me to have access to everyone else's platforms. And right. when the argument is presented that if uh, I chose, if I, if I had a podcast and I was like, yeah, I don't want to have this, some asshole on my show, that it absolutely would be within my right to do so. Um, or if I were, or when Twitter um, then you know, has these, you know, um, usage types of policies. The, the social media platforms are very bad at it because they profit off of harassment. They, they profit off of high engagement. Yeah. And so they're not motivated to um, protect their users. And that becomes an interesting thing also when we talk about um, uh, uh, profit because race, race the, the race craft, the, the project of race, the imperial project of race is... Um, capitalism. It, it's not just that it propped up a young economy of the United States, it's the fact that it continually perpetuates it, itself in multiple ways, constantly across um, the so-called Western empire. So that the idea somehow um, that if we eliminated racism, that capitalism would continue is um, probably not true because they, they are intimately connected. One of the issues uh, that I have is that even if I say, okay, that sounds, yeah, I want to deconstruct that, I don't quite know what replaces it. And, right. and I find myself sometimes in these bizarre arguments with people that I no longer engage with. Um, of If I say I'm against what you're talking about, that they automatically assume I'm some ridiculous, you know, Marxist feminist. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I guess I don't know. Give me some better ideas, and the and the and there are better ideas. And I find myself further left as I get older. But it's not because I'm. It's not because I. Am, 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 it's not because I have a deeply held belief that left any kind of leftist idea is way better than what's happening. But what I'm seeing is that the current system is crumbling. This is the we are in the we are currently in the crumbling empire. And when the GOP, especially right now, because they're the main face of this kind of thing, but it's happening everywhere, yeah. uh, then promotes CRT this week, um, cultural Marxism before. Um, it's to attack. Universities especially. So here's an interesting thing that I want to bring up. If the GOP is attacking universities, one of the reasons they're doing that and higher education, and they're saying like, oh, it's only for the elites, you know, the privileged elites. Mm -hmm. And it's actually a point that I agree on. I do think that universities are the privileged elites. But to me, the idea is then you would then include more things like gender and race. 
but the GOP wants to just, dis, um, you know, establish or wants to, you know, don't raise the current university because it ha as it has opened up to different perspectives and then produced um, expert knowledge that directly that directly attempts or that directly claims, hey, look, the current system we have isn't even remotely equitable. In fact, it is deliberately constructed in a way to only benefit a certain uh, percentage of people. And that, and that the, the, the current GOP propaganda moral panic, today it's CRT, is about undermining not necessarily just the current university, but all this scholarship that proves again and again, study after study after study, we have produced so much knowledge and so many ideas that say, hey, look, this isn't working for everybody. Oh, and guess what? Um, whatever's happening right now is a crumbling empire. If, if people everywhere don't have access to healthcare or housing or, yeah. or basic necessities or heat or uh, heat or cooling because of climate, that means that, that Within the next decade, um, you know, uh, people will just die more and more as well, the infrastructure is falling fail. apart too. <laughs> I yeah. mean, and, everything and it's literally crumbling. Literally crumbling because the the investment isn't in let's actually provide this service in a way that actually benefits people. The infrastructure is how can we create give the bare minimum of service and then make all these rich fat cats um, richer. Mm. And so the the infrastructure is not benefiting. You know the people of the state uh they are benefiting um the shareholders so it becomes this again um thing of well in order to distract from that yes why not we talk about this boogeyman this moral panic of just like the satanic panic there's so many parallels to it except yeah. for this is broader more widespread and the idea that that that's a legitimate fear your children are in danger of these ideas are somehow corruptive yeah. And they say that a lot of, as you say, there is an entire history, uh, especially of America, but Canada has done the same thing. They just do it in a different, nicer way. Um, <laughs> they, you know, we're, more we're, polite we're, about it. We are just, we're just as complicit uh, in this, this project, funny. this imperial project in a way that, that I think even Canadians are like, well, no, we're nicer. When Canadians feel smug, it's because they look at the U.S. and they say, we're not as bad. Like we have healthcare, we're not as racist. Um, we're not as terrible people. Our police don't kill as much. And um, those claims are kind of BS because our police do kill indigenous um, people a lot. Um, and our, our, the healthcare often, you know, when, um, when a lot of indigenous persons uh, go, to the, go into hospitals, they don't often come out or they get forcibly sterilized or their children are taken away from them. Or uh... there's all kinds of horrors of what's in policy uh, in terms of child protective services that actually meant to harm the family versus actually help. So Canadians can stop feeling smug about that yeah. shit. You're but, just as bad as we are. Kind of, the propaganda, I think, serves a, a purpose, though. Yeah. The propaganda serves a purpose to distract from the, the crumbling infrastructure, the crumbling empire. The propaganda serves a purpose to amplify fears uh, in order to continue with this project of white supremacy, I'll call it, which it is, but this, you know, who's invested in the current system, the stakeholders. If the stakeholders feel that there's more and more critique of what they're doing, then they are invested in generating, fabricating, manufacturing a moral panic as a distraction 
so that they can then implement all kinds of laws that limit, uh, that shut down uh, the information. So the that misinformation and the disinformation campaigns are yeah. very, yeah, they are effective, in a sense, uh, very much so. Because you're not then, because the more you focus on that kind of thing, the less you're actually then focused on, oh, well, how can we fix healthcare? Like mm -hmm. that's, that's, not a, that's, that's never a genuine conversation because everyone's distracted by the bullshit. Well, um, I think that's as good a place to stop our conversation today as, as, as any, really. I mean, we, we've covered a whole lot of groundwork, and there's still tons that we haven't even touched on. No. Um, so this is something that if, if the audience members who have been, you know, sort of pushing me to have this conversation, if you feel like we we've, haven't fully examined aspects that you were curious about or you wanted us to speak to, please shoot me an email or, or leave it in the comments or uh, in the live chat here. And at a later date, maybe we'll come back and, and address those concerns of yours. The truth is, is that the only reason why I'm talking about this is because I was asked to, because I was ignorant to it. And the reason I was ignorant to it is because it's just being demonized recently in our media you know as, as being uh, a, a shout out a sort of straw man argument about why liberals are trying to you know ruin our country if it wasn't ever brought up like that then the study would go on and there would be no problem and no one would give a fuck but yeah i mean no it's so, true they, we're talking about it because of the moral yeah. panic and um so yeah we're, we are contributing to that we're offering um you know 15 minutes of <laughs> right in in this hour and whatever maybe 15 minutes of um thought that of, of ideas that could possibly promote right. some self-reflection right. i have very little um i don't have a notion that i have an a, an effect on the world uh, but i do like that when i'm speaking um that i try to represent my thoughts as accurately as possible right. even with a mild fever um but i'm i'm glad that you did that you were interested in also talking about it even if i even though i'm not a critical race theorist at all i do understand propaganda yeah. you know as a scholar of uh, religion especially the concept of selling an idea the concept of selling something and what is the purpose of selling this idea what is the purpose of controlling the discourse as Dr. Cotton says, you know, we're never quite sure what the stakes are, but we know that they're high. We are, there's a high investment is in this, and it's on job to as critical, critical people going about the world to try to figure out uh, in all the bullshit, you know, what is the underlying motivations for these things. Yeah. Well, thank you for for spending time with me and, and walking through this with me. I appreciate it. Anytime. <laughs> Especially <laughs> since you know you are. You know, lightly fevered, and you know. I, I don't remember. I don't think we mentioned it, but I just got my second uh, COVID dose yeah. uh, yesterday, so I do have a mild loopiness. Um, but uh, <laughs> I think I did all right. Maybe I on the maybe on the rewatch, I might reconsider <laughs> that uh, that statement. But uh, I get it great, and uh, I, I want to also thank the audience. Um, thank you guys for taking the time to walk through the wade through this with us and uh sharing your perspectives because the truth is is you may not agree with anything we're saying you may have a completely different perspective of this that's okay as long as you're willing to hear others perspectives that's the important part you don't have to agree with me just hear me out and critically analyze the idea 
Uh, and that's all I ask of you. Just critically analyze the idea, look at where questions and statements are coming from and why. And that's as good as we can do. Thank you guys so much for tuning into this Speak of the Devil. Until we can speak of the devil again, hail Satan.